Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets, presented by Darwin Asset Management and Darwin Wealth Management, the podcast where we decrypt and demystify economic, financial, and other investing concepts in 20 minutes or less. I'm Remy, and with me today, I have Mike and Tino. Today, we're talking about old wives' tales. Everybody knows a few. Swimming after eating will give you cramps, or gum stays in your stomach for seven years, or my personal favorite, and the one that I argue with my wife about on a uh, fairly regular basis, being cold makes you sick, which for the record, it does not. The financial industry has no shortage of these to be sure. And of course, this is on markets, so we're gonna do an Old Wives Tales financial edition. If you have any questions, comments, or just want a shout out on the show, email us at comments at onmarkets.com, or you can hit me up directly at remy at onmarkets.com. That's R-E-M-Y at onmarkets.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to hit the follow button on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartMedia, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. So for anyone who's an avid reader of Tino's weekly publication, also titled On Markets, you'll know that Tino already wrote about this a few weeks, well, I was going to say a few weeks ago, but actually when I went back and looked, it was in September of 2021. So about four months ago now. Tino, there were quite a few examples in that piece. So why don't we pick a few of your favorites? Uh, You're asking me to force rank my kids right now, but I would say that probably the first one on the list, uh, never invest in all-time highs. You know, this is something that uh, I think is very timely. I mean, obviously, we've got some volatility in the market right now. But if you go back to last year in 2021, we had uh, over, I forgot the exact number, but it was over 60 all-time highs in the year. You know, so you think about that. And if you don't invest in an all-time high, you're going to say, okay, well, the market's too high. We got to wait for a pullback. Think about what you would have missed. I mean, last year, the S&P 500 was up 28%. Um, I mean, if you look further back, there have been roughly 330 all-time highs in the S&P 500 since call it uh, March of 2013. So what is that? Nine years or so? That's pushed the index's total return up to 247%. So think about along the way, had you not invested because you felt like the market was at an all-time high. So my point here is that all-time highs happen all the time. I think in in a market that we expect to go up, how can they not happen all the time? I mean, it's just sort of logical. It feels to me like the whole all-time high thing is one of those sensationalized things that you just hear on the media. That they need something to talk about, so they're gonna they're gonna turn something that's a relatively you know humdrum event into a thing. Oh, you know, you think about all the all the media events around when the Dow hits twenty thousand, twenty five thousand. Uh, those those numbers mean nothing different than you know nineteen thousand nine ninety eight. But we we have some significance around them. It's like you know when I when I turned forty years old, you know five years ago, uh, my wife threw me a surprise birthday party. It was a big deal, but I mean I didn't feel any different on forty than I did at thirty nine. So if you've listened to any episode prior to this one, you most certainly know that our shows are unscripted. We try to keep them as casual and as natural as possible. But of course, you have to do some planning. So we have a call each week to talk about our upcoming episodes and what some of the topics are that we might want to discuss. And one that we've been toying around with seemingly forever now, Tino, is the question, has the easy money been made? It wasn't that long ago that the market seemed like it was in the toilet. And over the past few years, we've seen all-time highs and a number of occasions, actually. So for many, it feels like if I had invested two years ago, it was easy to make a fortune, but now not so much. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the most annoying things I hear people say on TV is when the easy money has been made. Uh, I, I don't know of a time in this business where it's been easy to make money. And uh, I don't think it's going to get any easier going forward. So, I mean, it's a lot of, e- it's, it's easy to say the easy money has been made in, re- in, in hindsight, 
when you look back and say like last year 2021 oh it was easy to make money the market was up 28 percent uh but you know we lived through that you know there were there were times where you know we had clients calling panicking because we saw volatility and you know it's you can't just say it's easy to go through that so uh well, people have short memories too right if this year if this year we end up you know like last year up 20 percent you know where we are right now your market's been been volatile and it's been turbulent and and there are people uneasy right now but but they'll have forgotten about it at the end of the year if they made 12 or 14% of their money. They, they won't remember it ever happened. Sure. Unless they made the decision not to invest because the markets were at all time highs at that point. You had a lot of, left a lot of money on the table. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, you know, another, another old wives tale that, it, that Mike, this is more in your world than I'd say than, than mine is that, you know, your stock allocation should be 100 minus your age. I have no idea where this came from, but I mean, it's pervasive <laughs> in our industry, right? All those things, all those goofy things, though, like that, you know, drink eight glasses of water a day. And there's no science behind any of this stuff. And, and, and there's nothing, there's nothing. That one is probably even more ridiculous than most, though, to be honest, because there's really, I, I can't even think of a, of a logical explanation for that. I mean, you're just assuming everybody has the same tax structure, you know, uh, income, uh, risk tolerance. I mean, there's just like the number of financial planning variables that go into something like this it makes this beyond absurd. But I mean, Google it. It's out there. It's, I mean, people have been talking about this for decades. Well, it also, you know, it reminds me of, you know, I have people come in all the time and say, you know, at my age, I should be conservative because I think that's what they've been told for a million years by everybody. You know, when you hit a certain age, you no longer can take risk. But it really depends. I had somebody in here the other day that was making a substantial amount of money, and they're going to continue to make a substantial amount of money. And the money they have invested in the market is not something they're relying on for income, and they probably never will. And the first thing out of their mouth was, I, I know that at my age, I have to get more conservative. But they really don't. That money's going to the next generation. Why, why don't you invest it as though you're that next generation? It's, it's all about the goal. Yeah. So Tino, you just bought a house recently. I just bought a house recently. Mike, he seems like you buy a house every 15 minutes. <laughs> How about this one on your list? Renting is lighting money on fire. That's a good one. I, I have no idea. Again, this is one of those, it's been around for generations, you know, probably at least a hundred years now where it was the American dream, right? Go out, buy a house and you know, you've got an investment, right? I, we've talked ad nauseum about how I don't, we don't view homes as investments, at least primary residences. Renting is not lighting money on fire. Uh, if you want to light money on fire, come out and buy the house that I just bought. Okay, I mean it, the the amount of maintenance costs, the friction costs. I mean the the transaction costs with paying brokers. Um, you know the the insurance costs, the risk of damage from weather. Uh, you you I own a, a house that was built in 1910. Anytime we do anything in this house, anything, you run the risk of finding something behind the wall like asbestos. Um, not to mention the fact. That you are most most people that that buy homes in this country are taking on incredible leverage to do so. You know, you put if you're lucky, you're putting twenty percent down. So that means, yeah, sure, if the if the house increases in value, you do well. But if it goes the other direction, guess what? Leverage works both ways against you. There is absolutely nothing wrong with renting. Tino's heated about this one. Yeah. So uh, you know what? I'm I'm with you on this one. I've been arguing this point for I feel like my my entire life. Talk to anybody that's a landlord, right? They see the other side of it. You know, they, they think that the, the rent that their tenants are paying is always a great deal because they've got all the other expenses, the maintenance and the taxes and, you know, whatever else it is. They, they actually see the real numbers. So if you're on the other side of it, you realize that renting for somebody can be a really good deal. 
I just like the independence of it. You know, I mean, uh, when we, when something breaks, you call it, it gets fixed. You know, you don't have this, you know, this kind of this tail risk that's sitting out there, an act of God that could happen to your house with uninsurable. I mean, all those different things go into play. I mean, not to mention the fact that you're locking yourself in to an area that potentially, I mean, look, I mean, if, if you move into a house and six months later, you get a great job offer in some other city, that's going to take a long time to sell your house and recover any kind of, like I said, the friction costs earlier. It, it's not an obvious solution to buy. Tino, you and I are both in our 40s. How about this one? Don't start saving for retirement until you're in your 40s. Uh, so this goes back to, you know, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of Warren Buffett quotes per se, but uh, he is a... You, you always, you is, always uh, preface every Warren Buffett quote with, I'm not a fan of Warren Buffett quotes. I know, but... He, I love that. But I hate to say it, like he does have, have some good zingers, you know, but I, I think you I'm really definitely more of a, a Charlie you're, Munger you're, guy. You're a secret fan of this quote. <laughs> closet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to admit it though. You know, it's, I guess it's like being a Taylor Swift fan. You don't want to say it out loud publicly. Um, but that being said... Wow, I think you just admitted two things about yourself, Tino. You know, I've got a three-year-old and five-year-old daughters. I listen to this stuff all day. But uh, when I think about... Uh, Warren Buffett, you know, he, he made his money for, through compounded returns. And, you know, when he was a kid, he, he said he came to this idea that compounding was this amazing thing. And hey, look, you know, if you're 22 or 21 or 25 or 30, or it doesn't really matter, the sooner you start saving the, comp, the, the power of compounded returns because of patience and time. Uh, look, I mean, I know that when you're 25 or 30 years old, you know, you've got, you know, better ideas to spend your money, or maybe you're paying off student loans, whatever it might be. But uh, you know, even if it's $500 a month or, or, or you know, $5,000 a year, whatever it is, that over time can compound dramatically and it could create generational wealth if you're just patient and let it, let it grow. So here's one that we, you know, we just did an entire episode. The S&P 500 is a good benchmark for financial roles. We probably don't really need to dig into that one. I'd say if, uh, if anybody wants to, to hear about that, go back about three episodes and listen to our episode called, uh, what do we call it? I forget. The S&P is meaningless. <laughs> I guess that pretty much answers the question there. Which will be burned in my mind forever because I, I had a, a client call after they saw the title and they were unhappy that we felt that the S&P was meaningless. I think they took it a little too seriously. <laughs> you know what? There's no such thing as bad publicity. So, <laughs> Well, I got a good one here. This, is, this one is annual returns matter a lot. You know, we're in a business where, you know, I'm... I'm a money manager. I'm required to, or not required, but you know, we're measured on annual returns. And you think about the absurdity of measuring performance on an arbitrary number like a year. Look, that's nothing more than the time it takes the earth to circle a huge ball of gas. I mean, markets don't operate on calendars. You know, it's not like we woke up on January 1 a couple of weeks ago and what was driving the market in 2021 is completely different than this year. Uh, you know, we, we, we were talking about Warren Buffett earlier. Uh, one of my favorite statistics out there is that Warren Buffett uh, has underperformed the S&P 500 one out of every three years going back half a century. However, he's outperformed the index in aggregate by over 2.8 million percent. So think about that. One out of every three years, Warren Buffett underperforms the S&P 500, yet he's destroyed the index over time. If, you're, if you get too fixated on annual returns, imagine missing out on an opportunity like this. I see both sides of that one, though, to be honest with you, because you do need, I mean, how else do you, you need some standard of measurement. And, and I guess a year is just a convenient you know, period of time to use. So I do, see, I do see both sides of that one. 
Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't uh, disagree. I mean, there, there has to be some benchmark comparison. I guess my point here is that don't take them too seriously. You know, a lot of times, well, look, we, we, we see it all. It's going on right now with, uh, you know, let's say uh, not to name any names, but there are some uh, very popular money managers out there that did incredibly well, you know, during 2020. And, and what do you see? You see a lot of investors chasing performance because they saw a great number in 2020. And then you know, last year didn't really work out well for some of those same managers. So uh, my point here is not, not to ignore annual returns, but rather to take them with a grain of salt because they don't always tell the whole picture. Here's one for you, Mike. Uh, I know you're dealing with clients that are worried about the national debt. And uh, we just saw the national debt in this country just inc- um, rise over $30 trillion for the first time. That's not a small number. And there's this theory out here that rising national debt is going to be either uh, catastrophic for the economy, but more importantly, bad for stocks. And if you look at the data, I mean, look, the debt's been going up through both Republican and Democrat administrations for 20-something years. And uh, throughout that time, the stock market is still averaging just over 11% a year. So I, I find that a difficult one to swallow. That is a conversation I find myself having a lot more often than I would like to have it. You know, it's the media, though. It's, it's, it's what gets drilled into your head. I mean, it's, it's the same thing over and over again. We, we blame the media or we go back to the media, I should say blame, but we, we find ourselves talking about what's in the media all the time and, and how most of it really isn't nearly as relevant as the media would make it out to be. And I'll, I'll play it uh, tangentially here uh, when we're talking about national debt. Uh, I love this one, that the idea that China owns most of our debt and by extension, you know, we're all going to be speaking Mandarin one day when we default. I, I just, um, this one, I, I, again, it's, I don't know where this came from. I do remember those videos, you know, 15, 20 years ago that were being, not videos, they were commercials on TV um, showing just that, depicting our kids in school, speaking Mandarin and whatnot. Look, China only owns about 4% of our, do- our government debt. Ironically, about two thirds of the U.S. government debt is owned by us, U.S. citizens, corporations, and other government entities. So it's weird when we're paying interest on our government debt, we're actually paying it back to ourselves. Um, Furthermore, this is where it gets really annoying is that, look, I mean, even if China owned 80% of our debt, it's not collateralized, right? So it... It's not like they can show up with a barge and take the Statue of Liberty if we default. I mean, <laughs> that was going to be my next question. I mean, so, so, so what if we don't pay? They come and foreclose on the country and it forces all to speak Mandarin? Yeah, it's, it's just, um, you know, look, it's to your point, Mike, it's, it's a lot of TV and propaganda and, and frankly, some politicians with you know, bad motives. So there's a handful more in the article that Tino wrote. So for anybody that wants the full list, feel free to go to our website at darwinwealth.com. Go to Insights and you can browse through everything that Tino's written. And remember, this article was written in September, so you'll have to go back a few months. And I'll also leave a link in the show notes below. And just a reminder, if you have any questions or comments, shoot us an email. Don't be shy. We'd love to hear from you. Comments at onmarkets.com. This podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management, LLC and Darwin Advisors, LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.